scripture reading this morning is from 2 Corinthians 6, 1 through 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found in our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beating, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown yet well known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have some, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own afflictions. Affections. In return, I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belia? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you for uh, this this beautiful morning. And we thank you that that today um, is the day of salvation. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you fulfilled um, what the prophets promised in the Old Testament. And God, we thank you that, that you came, Lord Jesus, to bring salvation to all who would believe. And God, we thank you that you called not to just uh, forgive us of our sins, but to bring us into your family and to live a life that is joyful and abundant um, and that that we are living in in obedience to you and that we are uh, yoked to you. And God, I just pray this morning that um, 
wherever we're at, God, that uh, you've brought us in here from different uh, places this morning in this past week where some have had great weeks and others have had hard weeks. God, I pray we'd be reminded of your promises, and I pray that your promises would compel us to uh, examine ourselves, to repent, and to be in awe of the God Most High who loves us and who keeps us. And uh, we're just grateful. So God, have your way with each of us this morning. I pray, Spirit of God, that you would change us from one degree of glory to another. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning. So we are continuing in uh, 2 Corinthians, as, uh, as Ryan said. I titled this sermon this morning, The Yoke is on You. And, um, and there is a yoke on you. Uh, there is a yoke on each of us. And, um, and I pray that we would be reminded from the word this morning that there is only one yoke uh, that ends in lasting peace and that uh, can bring joy to us today in spite of whatever our circumstances are. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, he said this to those who were uh, still trying to work their way to the Father. He said these words, and these words are for us today, this side of the cross. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. A yoke is a wooden piece, a cross piece that is fastened around the necks of two like animals so that they can pull a cart or a plow. And um, in, a, in a yoke on two animals only works when the animals are either the same animal or a like animal of same size. Otherwise, they will be fighting against each other. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you, and today we're going to see Paul exhort believers to not be unequally yoked with believers. So we are yoked. Every day, whether we knew it or not, we're yoked to something. We're either yoked to the world systems and, or the lust of our flesh, or we are yoked to Jesus. In our gym, I've been paired up at times with a man who is much taller than me. And that works in a partner wad when there's not a bike involved. When there's a bicycle involved, when it's my time to get on the bike, I can't touch the pedals, and it's a burden. It's frustrating. And when he gets on the bike, his knees are hitting him in the chest. And it is not fun. Have you ever seen a father-child three-legged race? That's just an oxymoron. I just sh it shouldn't happen because it's a burden on the child and the dad and somebody's going to get hurt. Jesus' yoke is easy, and his burden is light. But when Christians become yoked to the world systems or yoked to the lust of our flesh, Paul tells us that we can look in the mirror and know that we have received the grace of God in vain. You see, being unequally yoked and receiving the, uh, the grace of God in vain are two sides of the same coin. We're going to talk about that today. And we're going to be encouraged today to be not to, to be yoked to Jesus and not to the world by three things. By remembering the promises of God, by purifying ourselves, and number three, standing in awe of God or revering God. Just a high-level reminder that Paul is writing 2 Corinthians, the second letter to the Corinthians, 
to a minority in Corinth um, who are wayward. They're, they're, they're professing Christians, but there's no evidence that they're Christians. They don't belong to a church. They aren't in fellowship with believers. There's no increasing desire for holiness, and there is no appetite for God's word. We know people like this. We know people who profess Jesus Christ as their Savior, but there's no evidence by their life that they belong to Jesus. They don't have a church family. They're not in fellowship with anybody. There's no increasing desire for holiness, and there's no appetite for God's word. Some professing Christians are more yoked to matters of conservative politics than they are to loving God and loving others. And there are other professing Christians that who think they're loving God and loving people by editing what the Bible has to say about human sexuality and marriage. Many professing Christians are yoked to world systems and to politics and to the lust of the flesh rather than being yoked to Jesus. If there's no evidence of being yoked to Jesus over a period of time, progressively I'm talking about, we all have days, I know I have days, where if you were to look at my life, you'd go like, man, he is yoked to something other than Jesus. But if there's not a, a, progressive, a progressive sanctification, if there's not an increasing um, evidence that we're being yoked to Jesus rather than being yoked to the world systems and yoked to the lust of our flesh, how can we say that we're Christians? How can we say that they're Christians just because they profess Christ? You may know people who have professed faith in Christ, and for a while their life proved that out. You look at their life and go, yeah, that's a Christian. Everything I see in God's Word, the way they're living their life, that is a Christian. But now they deny their faith. <laughs> because they professed faith in Jesus, because they asked Jesus into their heart at one point, and then the next 20 years they live like hell, um, do, are they Christians? What evidence is there that they belong to Jesus? How about those who have not denied Jesus with their words? They profess Jesus today. I had a, a friend in high school that um, we came to Christ, we think, in the, at the same time in Malibu, Canada, through Young Life. And both of us had changes in our life. We, we led junior high Bible studies. Um, we prayed together. We evangelized together. And as far as I know, that particular man, who was my best friend at the time, um, denies Jesus Christ. Not only does his life not resemble being yoked to Jesus, he denies him. Um, can I say that he's a Christian? Well, maybe. You see, if, if somebody's life does not match their profession, one or two things is going on. They're either regenerate, they have a heart of stone still, not a heart of flesh, or they will repent. They've backslidden, and they'll repent. There are some that have backslidden, and they repent. But we, we can't just wink at one another's sin and assume that we're good to go. Professing Christians whose lives are not increasingly yoked to Jesus and His call in their life are either regenerate or they've backslidden. And so you might be thinking of other people that you know right now. 
You might be thinking of a son, a daughter. You might be thinking of a mom, a dad. You might be thinking of a neighbor. You might be thinking of a relative of some hand, but, but not so fast, grasshopper. Uh, this is for you and me today. I encourage you not to think who could use this message until you've allowed God to hold the word of God up to your heart and to show you blind spots where you might be yoked to the world systems or to the lust of your flesh rather than being yoked to Jesus today. In chapter 5, verse 15, Stephen taught this a few weeks ago. Paul exhorted the church in Corinth that Jesus died for all, that those who... who that those who live might no longer, what, live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Jesus dying was to secure our salvation, yes, but also to change the trajectory of our lives. We're no longer to live for our kingdom, but for his kingdom. And he followed that truth up with a beautiful reality for the Christian in chapter 5, verse 17. He says, if anyone is in Christ, what? He is a new creation. The old is gone, and behold, the new has come. And you hear me say it over and over again. It's not about perfection. It's about direction, but there's got to be a direction in our life. Paul summarized chapter 5 with this life-altering truth in 521. For our sake, for your sake, he who knew no sin, you know it, he who knew no sin, the perfect one, became our sin so that what? So that we might become the righteousness of God. Not so that we can just be forgiven and continue to live our life any way we want to live it. He who knew no sin became our sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Paul is writing to an unrepentant minority in the church of Corinth who are listening to and following the false teachers and as a result have dis dismissed Paul and his message. These false teachers have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. And like many false teachers, they teach half-truths. If you ever watch some of the TV preachers, you're going to go, wow, that was good. Then a minute later, you're going to go, look, now, wait. That's not even truth. It's half-truths. And these false teachers most likely have a message of health, wealth, and prosperity. That if you believe in Jesus, he's going to give you everything you need in this temporal life. They're polished. They're successful. They're well-spoken. They're proponents of having your best life now and living for me, myself, and I. You'll hear false teachers saying, hey, you deserve that. You deserve that. In Paul's ministry, his aim is not to merely get people to pray a prayer asking Jesus into their heart. His aim is for all to come to saving faith in Christ that results in a life that progressively looks more and more like Jesus. Paul's aim is that all who profess Christ would be compelled by the love of Christ to live like Jesus. Every Sunday, Ryan, I assume, said it this morning, we tell you that WCC has a passion for what? For all to come to know Jesus. And it doesn't stop there, but that we would grow in our relationship with him. You see, if there's no growth, even small growth, I mean, raisins are okay. We can't have assurance that we belong to Jesus. And it's not about perfection. 
We're going to be perfect one day with Christ. But it's about direction. This growth, this sanctification, this becoming more like Jesus happens by the Spirit of God. It's His work through the Word of God. But listen to this. It's in the context of the people of God. There's no Lone Ranger Christians. We need each other. Paul knows that the message of salvation can land on different soils in different hearts. And the soil that hears the message and bears fruit has true life in Christ. And he wants to make sure, and that should be the aim of every pastor, to make sure that those who profess Christ did not receive his grace in vain. And Paul, knowing this, that some can re- receive the, uh, the grace of God in vain, just look at Mark chapter 4, where he talks about the four soils. Jesus talks about the four soils. Knowing this, that there's different soils, he knows that some in the church are deceived by false teaching, so he continues to call the wayward minority to turn to the Lord, to unyoke themselves from the world systems, from the lust, lust of their flesh, and be yoked to the living God who, in whom there is lasting joy. You see, we're duped by the enemy. We think we can find lasting joy in the things of the world, the worldly systems and following the lust of our flesh, but we can only find lasting joy by being yoked to Jesus, not only once at salvation, but every day. Paul is humbled by the reality that he is a junior partner with the Lord in the work of salvation. And I debated whether to use that term. But, but we truly are partners with the Lord. It's His work ultimately. But He's given us the message of reconciliation, that we are messengers of the gospel. God makes His appeal through us when we share the good news. And when the proclamation of the gospel lands on fertile hearts, the Spirit of God breathes life into, into hearts of stone and our con- who, who then become converted with hearts of flesh. You see, when we speak the message and the Spirit of God breathes life, the new comes and the old starts to fade away. What a joy it is that we get to be a part of God's work. In chapter 6, verse 1, Paul says, therefore, that working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. God's grace is a marvelous, scandalous reality in this world. It's undeserved mercy poured out of the heart of God onto and into sinners. But it must be received. To reject God's grace is to squander it. To resist it is to say, no, thank you, I'm good. And if we appear to receive God's God's grace but then go back to our former lives, we receive the grace of God in vain. We trample upon God's grace. And I would submit to you that many of us do this on a regular basis by justifying or ignoring all sorts of sin in our life. In order to not receive God's grace in vain, we need to regularly be reminded of God's grace and be reminded that it's an act of power to train us for godliness. We should never feel relieved when somebody simply steps up to an altar call. We don't do altar calls here. We call people to Christ. And if you do not know Jesus Christ this morning, it's a call that today is a a day of salvation. But how do we know if somebody is truly a Christian? Is that their life will progressively look like the life of Jesus. 
the end for Paul is, isn't a profession of faith, but a, a changed life. Paul loves the church in Corinth as his own children, and he won't stand by as they ruin their lives and make a mockery out of the cross of Christ. He longs to see proof of their conversion for the glory of God and the joy of the recipients and for the good of the mission. And when we receive God's grace in vain, we profess faith in Jesus for the, for, for the forgiveness of our sins, yet we go continue living like hell. It means thinking we can have our cake and eat it too in the sense that we want the fruit of salvation without yoking to Jesus and his commands. We're all happy. Who, who, who wants to go to hell? Everybody wants hell insurance. We're happy to be yoked to Jesus for salvation. But when we yoke to the world for our ultimate happiness, identity, and comfort, we're receiving the grace of God in vain. In verse 2, Paul quotes Isaiah 49, 8 as a reminder that God's promise of salvation for his people have arrived. And he quotes, he quotes Isaiah 49, 8 as a promise, an Old Testament promise, for he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in the day of salvation I've helped you. And then he states the fulfillment of that promise in Christ. Behold, now is a favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. This is both a call to proclaim the gospel and to live it out. Jesus, the promised Messiah, has come and died for the sins of the world. Now is a favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. The ark of salvation, the door is wide open. It's open for all to come into. One day when Jesus returns, the ark, the door to the ark is going to slam shut. Today is a day of salvation. It's a favorable day. The sun is shining, and one day the sun will set. This minority that Paul is writing to has closed their hearts to Paul and his message. And he appeals to them by the way he lives his life, not by his words. Have you ever thought about that? That our testimony, not only evidence of our salvation, but our testimony is most powerful when our proclamation matches our life. And I think one of the reasons that we live in a post-Christian culture in America now, it's, it's not the government's fault. It's the church's fault because the church ultimately looks no different than the world. We have, a, we have a gospel proclamation, and the world looks at it and goes, wow, like your churches are dividing. I don't see any confession of sin. I don't see any forgiveness in your church, and you're calling me to, uh, to repent from my sins when you're not doing it as a church? We see, give, we see in verses 3 to 10, Paul giving proof that authenticates his position and his message. Notice that he doesn't um, prove his ministry and the message by saying he has a blessed life. By saying, um, you know, come to Christ and you won't have any trials. Come to Christ and you will have a full bank account and a new car and a big house and a perfect marriage like mine. No. He says this. He says, in our ministry, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. There's, there's no greater abomination, in my opinion, than professing Christ and living like hell. It, it, it mocks the cross of Christ and it taints our mission in our network of churches 
we just had a pastor whom I love and whom I um, value, who preaches the gospel and preaches God's word in a way that affects change in lives of people. He's one of the best communicators of God's word I've ever sat under. And a month ago, it came out that he's been in eight years of multiple adulterous relationships. What does that do to the cross of Christ? What does that do to our message? That's a, that's a, um, a massive example. But when our lives don't progressively match our message, we receive the grace of God in vain, and it ruins our testimony to an onlooking world. So Paul says we put no obstacle in anyone's way. He's not saying he's perfect, but he says he strives for perfection so that no fault may be found in our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. And how does he commend himself to, to the church? With not nine different ways. He starts with, with nine ways that he commends himself in his message. First, he says is that we commend ourselves to you by great endurance. That we're called to endure. That in this, in this world, there's going to be trouble. But we're to endure it. And then he, then he gives nine types of trials that he endured by great endurance, nine types of trials. And by the way, we're not called to these particular trials. You don't have to, um, um, you don't have to experience all of these trials in order to walk with Jesus. But one of the characteristics of a Christian is one who endures. And Paul says, by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. I just, I have a hard time enduring my kids' dogs pooping in my backyard. Much less afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. Then he continues, we commend ourselves by, number two, after endurance, by purity. We commend ourselves to you by purity. Purity means devoted. The church, Jesus calls the church the bride of Christ. Jesus is our husband. We're to be pure and devoted to Jesus only, to be yoked to Jesus. I, we commend ourselves by being pure. We commend ourselves, three, by knowledge. is ones who not, don't just know about God, but we know Him intimately. And by patience, number four. We commit ourselves to you by patience. Look at our lives where we long suffer with others, even those who malign us. And number five, we commend ourselves by kindness. That's one step beyond patience. It's one thing being patient and biting your tongue. It's another thing being kind, even to those who malign us. And number six, he says we commend ourselves to you by the Holy Spirit, that we have God's Spirit. And anything good come out of our lives is a result of God's Spirit, not us trying harder. We commend ourselves by genuine love, a love that seeks nothing in return. We love you, church, and so we're going to speak truth to you. So the next is he commends them by truthful speech, or a better way to say that is the word of truth. He says we stand on God's word. We don't, we don't just stand on our own opinions and strategies. We commend ourselves by the power of God's word. 
And then finally, we commend ourselves by the power of God, and that's connected to the Spirit of God. And he says we do this, if you continue to, to go down the passage, we do this with the weapons of righteousness. We don't fight with harsh words. We do with weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. And this takes us back to Ephesians chapter 6. Remember the armor of God? Weapons of righteousness. A warrior in that time would, on his left hand would, would, would hold the shield and his right hand would hold the sword. He says we fight with weapons of righteousness, not human weapons. And we do this through honor and dishonor, whether we're honored or dishonored. We do it through slander and praise. He says we commit, continue to commend ourselves in this way when, when we are treated in chapter 6, verse 8b through 10, when we're treated as imposters, yet we know we're true. We know we're true. We're true believers. We're true apostles. You can treat us this way, but we know that we've been truly reconciled and we've been given the message of reconciliation. We're treated as an unknown yet well-known. Our ministry and our message are ignored, but we are known. In fact, every hair on our head is known by our daddy. And you may not recognize us, but we're known. We're treated as dying, and behold, we live. We live close to death, and we go where the Lord leads us to preach the message of reconciliation that could get us killed. But we live and will continue to live until Jesus takes us home or returns. I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 84.10. He says, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. You know the song. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Yes, we are putting our lives at risk for the sake of Christ, but we do that because we live in Christ. We live as punished. We're treated as punished, yet not killed. The same thought. We are treated as sorrowful or grieving, yet we rejoice. What Paul's saying there is that we see all the brokenness around us. We see the, the lust of the flesh inside us, yet we rejoice, we rejoice because he agrees with Jesus' words. In this world, there will be what? Trouble. But we can take heart and rejoice because he has overcome the world, and he will return one day to make all things new. We're treated as poor, yet making many rich. We may be poor in this world, but we're the richest because we are sons of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and we have a sure inheritance in Him. And our aim is to make others rich and to encourage them to live in light of His riches, the riches of heaven, rather than the riches of this temporary life. And finally, we're treated as having nothing, yet we possess everything. And Paul's greatest joy is to make other people rich, not in a Joel Osteen kind of way, but in a God kind of way. And it hearkens us to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 that we're going to cover in a couple of weeks where he says that for, for you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty we might become rich. And then we go to verses 11 through 13. And Paul says, we've spoken freely to you, Corinthians, 
Our heart is wide open to you. What he's saying here is that our mouth has been open to you and our heart has been open to you. We speak to you because we love you. We have affection for you. He says in verse 12, you are not restricted by us, meaning that, that we, we have not held back our love and affection for you. You're not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. You've withheld your love and affection from us. We spoke the message of reconciliation to you, and you believed it. And now you're living in a way that tramples upon the grace of God, so our mouth continues to be open to you, not just to proclaim the gospel so that you're saved, is that we want to see you purified. Because we love you, our hearts are wide open to you. We're your spiritual parents. We risked everything. We sacrificed everything in order for you to receive the riches of Christ now and forever. And we will not close our mouth or our hearts to you. We will continue to pursue you because of our concern for you. You've withheld your affection from us. Open your heart to us and to our message and repent so that you might have assurance of salvation and once again experience the joy of your salvation. And this is the beginning of church discipline. And I know church discipline is a, something that we're scared of, we're afraid of. But church discipline is a way that we should live with each other. When we see one another like going, stage left, running away from the gospel, yoking to the systems of the world and to the lust of the flesh, it's not loving to close our mouths to one another. What, what's evidence that our, that our hearts are wide open to one another is that we open our mouths to one another and go, what are you doing? Who are you yoked to? Turn from that. What's going on in your heart? Turn and be yoked to Christ. Paul's serious about sin. And I couldn't resist this, but he's not yoking around. Dad joke. And he wants the yoke to be on you. The yoke of Jesus. Do you want to know if you've received the grace in God in vain today? Ask yourself, are you more yoked or in, in step with the things of the world than you are of Jesus? What are you looking to for ultimate comfort, identity, and happiness. He tells us in 14 through 15 to not be unequally yoked to unbelievers. And this isn't just people. This is, this is, uh, this is the systems of the world. This is, um, this is uh, our unbelieving flesh at times. And what Paul isn't saying is that we should abandon all relationships with unbelievers. We should have deep relationships with unbelievers. Some of my best friends are unbelievers. And they're not projects. I love them. I love them deeply. But he's warning us to not be yoked with them and their worldview. And he goes on to say, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what accord has Christ with Belial? Belial is a name for Satan. 
Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? You see, believers and unbelievers have different operating principles and worldviews and aims. Just as Christ has nothing to do with Satan and light has nothing to do with darkness, so the believer must not be intimately yoked and in partnership with an unbeliever. And I'm not sure it necessarily means we can't be in business with an unbeliever. I'm not sure about that. But it definitely means that we shouldn't be unyoked with an unbeliever um, in marriage. Or dare say for young people, uh, dating. Missionary dating sometimes works out but it's not God's best. Have you ever heard of an interfaith worship service? Interfaith. What is that? Like interfaith, like interfaith, um, Muslims, Mormons, um, uh, evangelicals coming together for the sake of the country to have a worship service. I'm not going to worship with them. Because I can't. They're worshiping this God, and I'm worshiping the God. In the town of Windsor, there's two uh, groups of pastors. There's one group that I would call evangelical that meet once a month to pray. And quite frankly, I haven't made it there. I'd like to make it there because I'd like to, I'd like to yoke with these men who believe that Jesus is the only way to the Father. But there's another group of pastors that's ecumenical that, that uh, don't believe the same things that I believe. And I'm not going to yoke with them. The, the, the church, church, is going two different ways. There's one part of the church in America that is coming over here, and they're having the holy huddle, and they're separating themselves from the world. And they can't be salt and light that way. And there's another aspect of the church that is bringing the world in. And what Christ has called us to do is to yoke to Jesus and his word. To stand on the gospel of Jesus Christ that says we're to love everybody and serve everybody. To welcome everybody but at the same time call sin, sin. And that's where this church is going to land in this progressively secular culture. We're going to love people in the world. We're going to have friendships with people in the world. But we're going to call sin, sin. But we're also going to let them know that we are sinners, saved by grace. And our sin is no worse than their sin. In the same way that we need a Savior, they need a Savior. In verse 16a, he hammers his point home with the truth of God's temple. He asks, what agreement is the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of God. You see, in the old covenant, the temple of God was a physical sanctuary of Yahweh, the God of Israel, who by his very name and commandment forbid the making and worship of idols. We have idols. I have idols. I woke up this morning going, in fact, at the beginning of the service, I'm going, why do I think about these things? Why do I think about these things? I have certain idols that drive me and distract me. What is an idol? One author defines idolatry as an attack on God's exclusive rights to our love, trust, and obedience. Idols are always false gods. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones says, anything that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone is an idol. An idol is anything in the world systems or in our flesh that we yoke to for ultimate fulfillment, identity, comfort, and happiness. C.S. Lewis says, idols inevitably break the heart of their worshipers. In 2 Corinthians 16 through 18, Paul strings together a a series of commands and promises from the Old Testament. There's there's no less than six different Old Testament uh, promises and commands in these verses 16 through 18. He says this, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of God, as God said. I'll make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I'll be their God, and those who be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst." And be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I'll be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. These are Old Testament promises to his covenant people, and they were all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. These promises belong to all who've been reconciled to the Father through faith in Jesus. And I want to summarize these three promises as we close this service. Uh, These three promises from these three verses. The first promise is that He is with you. He is with you. His dwelling place is with you. As such, He walks with you and He seals you by His Spirit as a guarantee that He is your God and we are His people. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, He says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God indwells you? Number the second promise, he has set you apart. He has set you apart. Jesus fulfilled this by living the perfect life. He sinned not. And his perfect life and his sacrificial death have been credited to your life. And as a result, the Father welcomes you. He has set you apart from this world. That you and me are the apple of his eye. We're trophies in his trophy case that Jesus has won. He welcomes you. He has set you apart. Number three, the third promise, he's adopted you. Have you ever been to an adoption court hearing? I've been to one, and I don't know if they say it in every one. But they should. We went to one for one of the Kozlowski kids. And the judge said to Gary and Celinda, are you ready to bring Jeremy into your forever family? And Jeremy, do you say yes to being part of the Kozlowski family forever? The third promise is that we're adopted. And that adoption is a forever adoption. It's not contingent upon your behavior or your obedience. And I want to encourage you, whenever you read God's Word, whenever you listen to a sermon, you should always ask the question, so what? Now what? God, how do you want me to respond to this Monday morning? Throughout the Bible, There are indicatives. Indicatives are what God has done for us. And indicatives should always fuel the imperatives of Scripture, how we respond in obedience to the indicatives. 
And our natural default is to think that the imperatives drive the indicatives, that our obedience somehow secures God's favor. But in the gospel, it is God's favor already won by Jesus Christ that impels or compels, excuse me, our obedience. In chapter 7, verse 1, we see this dynamic as Paul exhorts the Corinthians to obedience based on God's promise rather than exhorting them to holiness as a way to secure God's promises. He says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So I want to send you out with these three reminders. If you don't want to take the, the, the grace of God in vain, if you want to be yoked to Jesus rather than being yoked to the world, remember this. First, number one, remember the promises of God. Write them on your forehead. Put them on the fridge. Remember that He indwells you. You've been set apart and you've been adopted. Remember the promises of God. Number two, purify yourselves. Cleanse yourselves. You do that by naming the idol that you're yoked to. Name it. Understand why you lust for it. Repent of it. Receive God's forgiveness. And find a yoke fellow or a yoke fellowess to walk with. God's done this in my life recently here. Where there's a few areas in my life where I feel like I haven't been finding victory that I've been yoked to. <coughs> and I found a couple of yoke fellows. One, of course, is my wife, Nancy. Yoke fellow us. <coughs> Find a yoke fellow to walk with. And number three, be in awe of God. Revere God. Fear God. Not in a trembling like I hope he doesn't like take away my salvation but be in awe of his character, of who he is. And this is circular. Rinse and repeat. Circle back to the promises of God and be in awe of the great promise keeper. Pray with me. God, thank you that you are a promise keeper. We thank you that you came to seek and save the lost. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you who knew no sin became our sin. You took all of it, past, present, and future. That you canceled our record of debt. And that you clothed us in the righteousness of God. And I thank you that because, Lord Jesus, your perfect life and your sacrificial death have been credited to us, that the Father sees us as sinless because we've been covered by the blood of Christ. And God, I pray that you would compel us by the love of Jesus to um, live as you already see us. To be holy. And God, when we stumble, I pray, God, that you would show us what it is in our heart that is that we're yoked to. That's keeping us from being yoked to you. And God, I pray that we would not receive any condemnation from the enemy, but we would joyfully receive conviction from you and that we would peaceably repent of whatever it is you show us. And that we would just continue to walk 
yoked with you and yoked with other believers. So God, we thank you for loving us and keeping us. And we thank you for your spirit that indwells us, that carries us along until you return or you take us home. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.